0: Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host, Leo, and today we are talking about The Odyssey, the 1997 miniseries that uh, is probably one of the best adaptations of The Odyssey that uh, I can think of, at least. Uh, But before we get into that, I also need to say that for the update this time, it should be a little bit longer than normal. As I will be talking about not only the fifth book, but all of the Percy Jackson and Olympians books. As well as, you know, just just kind of decompressing a little bit after having read all five of those books in quick succession. And I'll also be talking about the first checkpoint book, or spacer book, however you like to call it. Uh, Star Wars... Shadows of the Empire and how that's going. But uh, yeah, before we get into that, let us talk about the Odyssey. So, my history with the Odyssey is kind of twofold. <laughs> so, there's my history with this film, and of course, my history with the story itself. So, my history with this film is not super complex or anything. I remember watching it as part of, like, I think a middle school social studies class? No, no, a middle school English class. And we were talking about, like, the classics and whatnot. And instead of forcing us to read The Odyssey, she decided to show us this version, which is... A relatively close approximation of the original story. And it is. It's a fairly good approximation. She fast-forwarded through a lot of it because it is a very long movie. Well, I mean, by the fact that it goes by a, the title miniseries, it's very long. On the DVD I have, it's broken into two parts. You watch the first part, and then it kicks you back to the menu, and then you select the second part. <laughs> It's a little bit annoying to try to watch in one sitting, but it's fine. The movie itself is three hours and four minutes long, and you you kind of start feeling it. it. It's it's a bit rough. My history with the story of the Odyssey, well, of course, me watching this version a bit in an English class, you know, got my interest raised a bit, but. I would say that a mixture of just my general curiosity for Greek mythology and Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters, those are two of the things that got me to actually try and read The Odyssey. So I ended up picking up a copy of it and trying to read it. And it wasn't terrible. The version that I have... So I might have said last, uh, last episode that I... I do have a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. One of them is in verse, while the other is not. So, I think I had them uh, backwards. I thought that the Iliad was in verse and the Odyssey wasn't, but it's actually the opposite. So, the version of the Iliad that I have is a plain word translation, and... And for the most part, that's fine. It just means it's a little bit easier to read. And also, supposedly, it's a little bit more close to what you would have heard um, around a campfire or around a dinner fire in ancient Greece. Is at least what it sells itself as. But I don't I I'm not ancient Greek, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> but I, it makes sense that they wouldn't sit there trying to put it into poetic verse, you know. It's just that someone decided to take the spoken word and turn it into verse when it was written down. And then, you know, it tends to be perpetuated as uh, as in verse a lot of the time. Uh, well, some uh, epic poems are kept in verse, but some aren't. Anyway, moving moving away from that, uh, my version of The Odyssey is in verse. It's a newer translation of The Odyssey. It's a, like a 90s translation. And something I'm not a big fan of is that part of the story is told from his son's perspective. And that seems to be how it is. It's just like some of it is told from his son's perspective, but it would seem that some of Odysseus's story is told to his son, which then just throws into question whether or not it actually happened a lot of the time, because, you know, legends get spread around and they get inflated uh, as word travels. But I stopped there, I really probably should have continued reading on, but... Oh well. <laughs> uh this version of the Odyssey leans full in. It it's all mythology all the time. He talks to gods, he sees gods, he comes across monsters. You kind of can't tell the story of the Odyssey without actually touching mythology. You know, that, that's where the Iliad kind of gets away with it, is it can kind of cut out all of the gods and whatnot. And still, mostly have a story, but the story of Odysseus is the story of like pridefulness and you know, kind of spitting in the face of the gods, and then the gods bitch slapping him for doing so. So, so so that's kind of um, <laughs> that's kind of why it's important that you have to have the mythological elements. Uh, there's a lot of things that are different between this version of the odyssey and at least the written version that i have Uh, and that is what he did to piss off poseidon and the gods in general so in the film he pisses off poseidon because poseidon helps his plan actually work so the trojan horse Because this film starts with the birth of his son, him being called to war, and, you know, answering the call. And then a good chunk of the beginning is the Iliad, essentially, you know, his battle at Troy and everything. Because it's kind of needed for context. Then, after Troy, well, after Achilles dies, he sets sets in motion his plan to build the trojan horse but a soothsayer comes and says that they should burn it that they shouldn't trust it it's it's nothing you should get rid of it but then a sea serpent attacks the soothsayer and one of odysseus's men that was left behind to try to sell the story uh is able to then convince the king to take the horse because they have angered Poseidon by not accepting the Greeks' gift. So then, of course, you know, the Trojans uh, are slaughtered, and that's just kind of skipped over. But Odysseus sees it as his triumph. So he, for some reason, goes to the seaside and screams out over the ocean that he no longer needs the gods, that he is brilliant, he only needs himself and his mind, and whatnot. And Poseidon then immediately responds in turn saying, your plan would have failed without me. For your insult, I am going to make sure you never see Ithaca again. Which is later revealed to not fully be true, but yeah. In the book, it's a bit different. Now, I'm a little bit confused as to exactly what happens. One thing that I remember reading is that his men forgot to make a sacrifice to Poseidon for, you know, actually ensuring that they got there safely. You know, they didn't make a sacrifice to Poseidon when they got there, and they didn't make one when they were getting ready to leave. So he was like, well, fine, you won't get home. That's, I think, one thing that they did to piss him off in the book. Another thing that they did to piss off a different god in the book uh, was they ate the sacred cattle of Apollo. So it's very likely that both Apollo and Poseidon decided, yeah, no. Apollo, uh, his revenge is making sure that none of the men survived. While Poseidon's revenge is making sure that Odysseus is stuck at sea almost indefinitely for as long as you know he can get away with and so from there in the in the film you know things kind of follow mostly the same deal uh there's a lot of things i can't confirm because again i I stopped after his son set off to try to find him which in the film doesn't happen until the end of the book in the film it doesn't happen until the end but in the book it just kind of happens near the middle where he goes to see king menelaus of sparta which is another thing that's kind of interesting uh yeah the movie troy i'm the more i learn about the iliad and like what actually happens in it the more i learn that yeah troy is very inaccurate <laughs> because in troy king menelaus is killed um, Achilles survives, at least to actually get into Troy, which supposedly does not happen. Um, and Ajax, you know, who I said was my favorite character in, in the film, who is killed by Hector, uh, supposedly, uh, accidentally ends up killing himself in the book, so I'm really interested to in reading actually reading the iliad and once again taking another crack at the odyssey but again i'm i'm in the middle of a reading challenge so that can that can wait i i've i've collected them from my library and i've set them next to my chair so that i can reference them and whatnot i also have two greek mythology books that have the stories of the iliad and the odyssey within them you know condensed versions of them obviously That I will probably be taking a look at at some point. But that's for later. That's something I'll mention in the update um, when I record it later. But anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, so that, that was interesting to learn. But with The Odyssey... Basically, it's just after they he, he decides to set forth after Poseidon's warning, regardless, and he immediately gets stuck in a fog. He gets stuck for months in a fog until finally he is brought to an island. Like, him and his men find an island, and on that island is a Cyclops shepherd named polyphemus or polyphemus one of those two anyway so they end up stuck in the cave and decide he decides that the best way to get out is to you know carve a thing blind the cyclops and then just kind of sneak out because he'll go to call for his brothers so in, in order to do that he'll have to open the door so they do that he opens the door they slip out One of them is able to sneak out by putting some uh, wool over him and sneaking out pretending to be a sheep. But uh, Odysseus' flute player does not survive. He gets uh, squished by Polyphemus. So, after that, they flee and come across another island. And I believe it is at this island that Odysseus comes across Aeneas, the god of wind. And he bestows upon Odysseus um, this a sheepskin. Well, Odysseus goes to fill his water, but yeah. The, the wind god's messing with him and keeps moving the water around. But he just, he takes that uh, sheepskin that he was trying to fill. And fills it with the winds of the north, east, and south. Leaving him only a westerly wind. So that he can get home. Now, he's not told to not tell his crew... But I'm guessing that, you know, probably in the book he's told not to or something. And his men assume that he found gold. And that he, you know, he's just trying to hoard it for himself. He tells them, I will tell you once we reach Ithaca. And he almost certainly intends to tell them. But they get paranoid and they cut the seal and open it literally as they are at Ithaca, literally, he they see a seagull. They're they're so close to Ithaca, but because they feel that if they reach Ithaca, he will not share with them what is in it, he they decide to pop the cap. But you know that's that's kind of the the irony set forth in this story. So. After that, they end up on the Isle of Circe, In which... Him, being very mad at his men for having stranded them... After being so close to home... He lets them run off to get food. You know, hunt food. Because he just doesn't care. Only one of them returns... And after they've caught a little piggy that they're trying to eat, he, they, the sole survivor returns and says, "Don't, that's that's one of our guys. Don't kill him." So Odysseus, after hearing this man's story, sets off retracing their steps and starts climbing a mountain while the one guy has to like fend off everyone from the from the pig. He climbs the mountain, and as he's climbing, he comes across Hermes. Hermes tells him that she's expecting him, and what he needs to do is eat this grass, and he said, and Odysseus is like, I'm not going to eat that, that's, that's poison. But Hermes says, it's a gift from a god, take it. And he's like, well then I refuse. And he's like, it's the only way you won't be turned into an animal. So then Odysseus eats it. He says, good. Now you'll be, you won't be—you will be turned into an animal. And when you do that, she'll be surprised. You have to threaten to kill her. Then she'll offer to sleep with her. Accept. And then your man will be returned. And that's pretty much exactly what happens. He goes in. She sits him down, gives him some uh, honeyed wine. He drinks and doesn't turn into an animal. So she kind of panics, falls to his knees, and he then draws a sword on her. And then she's just like, come to bed with me. And he goes, okay. They do the business and his men are returned to their normal form. She offers to let them stay for a bit to rest and recoup and yeah you know, uh, he does <laughs> and what he so this is where it gets a little bit confusing because he th- this film seems to combine two different things together into one it combines Circe's Isle with the cult of the lotus flower so Circe's Isle is where she turns men to animals Usually pigs or whatever. And the cult of the lotus flower, they trap people and feed them the lotus flower that makes them want to stay forever. And then time also, you know, just kind of speeds up. You know, so what feels like five days for you is actually five years. And so she has kept them there for five years. And he then turns, rushes down, after he sees that his ship is buried in the sand, because it has been five years. He rushes back, wakes his men, and she tells him that if he wants to know how to get to Ithaca, or get back to Ithaca, he has to find this man. And he's like, but that man's dead. And she's like, exactly. So you have to go to the underworld and talk to this guy. To do do so, you must go to the river of fire, sacrifice a a ram in it, and then cross the river yourself that's not what happens uh, funnily enough so what he ends up doing is he carries this ram through this island which i guess is supposed to be the en- an entrance to the underworld is his men like park the boat at a dock in in this island that leads into this thing and as he's carrying the ram through all these ghosts start like harassing him wanting the ram And one ghost that he sees is the flute player that died on the, uh, on Polyphemus' island. And he asks him to show him the way to the guy. And so his friend ghost, you know, parts the others, and he is able to proceed. And then that's actually where the first part ends. Uh, some things that were happening on the other side of the, uh, The break, I guess. Uh, The other side of the story, following his son and his wife. So, his son, you know, slowly grows up. His wife is... She holds on to hope as long as she can. You know, just holding on tight. And she... She has to start dealing with the beginning of suitors starting to take over their house it doesn't happen for a little while but after the so there's the 10 years of the war and then there's like he goes missing for it's like seven he's, he's on cersei's island for five he's floating around and goes to Polyphemus's Island, that's about another one, it ends up being about 16 years, and that's when the suitors start harassing her, and because of their custom, because they pr- produced a gift, she has to accept them. Even though I'm pretty sure that the custom is supposed to be, if you accept the gift, then you have to accept them, and... That's what they end up using as an argument later on is that she accepted the gifts, but that, that aside. but so that's happening and it's slowly getting worse and eventually his mother snaps. She can no longer wait for him. So she walks into the sea, uh, killing herself. And in this next part, uh, part two of the Odyssey, Kind of winds back the tape a bit to, you know, allow the credits to roll as he's exploring and he gets his friend's help and whatnot. Then he goes down these stairs that at the end of is, so there's there's a little pathway and at the end of that pathway is like a smaller like vent and he has to crawl into that vent. So he does, and he he has like he's lugging this ram around with him. He comes up to the guy on the other side of this vent, who's just chilling by the river of fire with his feet in the river. He's like kind of splashing around, which is a fun image. Uh, it's Christopher Lee, loved it, and he tra- he tries to get the information out of him first, and he's like, "You're a smart man, but you're not wise." So. What he does is he throws the ram into the river. And the old man tells him, you already know the answer. Like, it's you've been staring at it this entire time. You have to look for the constellation of a hunter. Orion's Belt. And you just follow its brightest star. And you will reach Ithaca. And th- that's pretty much it. And he's also kind of told him that... He kind of told him the lesson, because he's like, oh, you know, the journey is, you know, there's a reason behind it, kind of thing. You're kind of not seeing the, the thing. And he also says, once you reach, you know, get through, you will come across Scylla and Charybdis. On one side is Scylla, a monster that will, you know, snatch up, you know, the people off your boat. And on the other, Charybdis a monster under Charybdis, a monster under the sea that like brings a whirlpool and whatnot. When he does reach Scylla and Charybdis, it's a bit different than described, so it ends up being like this weird cave that he has to go through. And Scylla is like on, on a wall or near a wall. And, like, it's snatching from, like, across the way kind of thing. It's it's kind of weird. And Charybdis is at the end of this cave. It ends in a waterfall that goes straight into Charybdis' mouth. So, yeah, you would think it's a different way. I mean, I could kind of envision it. Because normally I believe what it's supposed to be is... It's a passage that you have to go through. On one side is this cliff that from, you know, on high, this, these like snake things come down and eat you. And on the other side is a whirlpool and you have to either skirt close to the cliff or try to like whip around the whirlpool. But, you know, I could be wrong. I don't know. (laughs) That's just usually how it's depicted. But in this, uh, he ends up, after, you know, climbing to try to get away from Charybdis. uh, Charybdis, you know, spits out after they've, after she's sucked in the ocean. She spits out uh, the sea and it knocks them off what they were holding on to. He falls into the ocean. Every one of his uh, shipmates is dead. And he then ends up on... The island of, well, it does, they don't say it in the movie, but it, it's supposed to be Ogigia, Um where Calypso lives. She holds him there for some amount of time. It's not stated. I believe in the book it's stated that she holds him there for seven years. She's the one that takes the most t- of the ten years that he's missing. <laughs> Which, yeah. <laughs> but, eventually Hermes shows up and says, You're holding him prisoner? Uh, that's not cool. So Zeus says, let him go. She says, fine. She lets him go. He builds himself a raft and sets sail. Um. And then his... Raft gets destroyed, and he finally asks Poseidon, what do you want from me? And Poseidon says, I want you to suffer more. And Odysseus replies, I have nothing left. What could you possibly want? And I have nothing but my life. And Poseidon says, I don't want to kill you. That's beside the point. I want to show you something. I want you to get the point. And he Odysseus finally says, what's the point? And Poseidon reiterates something that he said at the beginning, that men are nothing without gods. And after that, Poseidon, Poseidon, after having told him that, releases him and lets him go, essentially. Puts him on a ship to see a king, After telling the king his story, the king asks his name and he says that I cannot tell you my name for my name is cursed. Whoever knows my name tends to have trouble befall them. And the king replies, oh, well, there's only one guy I know with a curse who's angered the gods and they have cursed his name. And that would be Odysseus. And Odysseus goes, well, I am he. And so the king gives him a ship some men and takes him home but along the way he kind of refuses to sleep so the men drug him like force him to go to sleep uh and when he wakes up he is back on Ithaca he goes sets up uh, with his uh, farm hand and at that time his son comes back because in this part Uh, Things with the suitors have gotten much worse. They're trashing his house. They're um, doing a lot of not good things. And so he sets off to try to find his father. He goes to King Menelaus, who reports that if Odysseus has not returned home, he is dead. And... Upon returning, well, he visits the farmhand, and the farmhand, uh, you know, is about to try to tell him that his father's alive, but you know, he's too busy. He's trying to get back to his mother, and Odysseus calls out to him. It takes some convincing, but he finally convinces his son that he is his father, and they embrace and they tell each other stories, I guess, and. He tries to come up with a bit of a plan, but he instead of just rushing into things, he decides to sit out and wait. At this point, Athena, while not giving him a plan, uh, does kind of nudge him in the right direction by giving him a disguise, saying that only his son will recognize him. So he's disguised as an old man and goes with his son to see his house. Just see how bad it actually is. And to better formulate a plan. After... Uh, tempering his son's anger uh, that would have surely gotten him killed he then just kind of potters around and sets forth a plan his wife has decided to uh, issue a challenge the challenge is that they have to string Odysseus's bow and fire the arrow cleanly Through, I believe it's 12 axe handles. These axe handles have like a ring at the end, and it has to go through each ring and hit the post at the other end. They say it's impossible, and you know, the response to that is, Well, Odysseus did it, and the challenge is set to them. They all attempt to string the bow, but they can't. So, uh, after. Spears are brought into the room without the suitors knowing. Uh, Odysseus sets forth to his plan. After one of them throws the bow in rage, Odysseus goes, picks it up, still disguised as an old man, easily strings the bow, takes an arrow, fires it through the rings, and hits the post at the end. And when he stands back up, he is you know revealed to be Odysseus, and he takes his seat, And he then tells his son, now is the time to unleash your anger. In which then they slaughter all the suitors. And one of the suitors, the kind of, I guess, mastermind, the one that assumed that he had the most opportunity at Penelope, he decides to try to talk to him. He says, what have we done wrong? We have done, you know, this, that, and sure, we ate of your land, but that can be replaced. And Odysseus says... You tried to steal my world. A world that I built with my hands. A world that I built with my wife. And you tried to steal that from me. And so he slaughters everyone. All of the suitors killed. Then, kind of the most disappointing part, because this kind of takes away Penelope's genius. Of course she... So, in the original... It's supposed to be that Penelope, yes, is the one to think of the plan to make them string the bow and fire it through the axe handles. But she also has one final test. And that is, she has a question for him to make sure that it is him. And that question is, what is our bed or it's it's something along those lines it's like what is our bed or what is our bed made out of and in th- it's supposed to be that the originally their bed is made out of a tree so like it's like in this supposed to be like in the center of their house they he like cored out a tree and the tree is still living i believe but their bed is in that tree in the movie I understand why they didn't really do it. Though They've made some amazing sets. They could have done it, honestly. But this, what it is, is it, they have a tree growing out of their room. So technically, they still could have put it in and been like, what is the centerpiece of our room or something? I don't know. I would have preferred if they left in Penelope's final question. But they left it out. Well, then it's just a happily ever after and movie done. <laughs> the only, like, kind of cutesy thing is he, f- well, one annoying thing is he fears that she has not been faithful to him. When he was definitely not faithful to her, he slept with both uh, Cersei and Calypso. Now, in the film, Cersei, it's kind of understandable, it was literally the only way to save his men. Funnily enough. Uh, but Calypso, uh, not so. She was literally trying to use it to make him forget. So that he would stay with her. But, yeah. She. He, he held her to higher standards than she had to hold him to. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, so. She's worried that after. A total of him being away for 20 years that he might not find her attractive anymore because it's been 20 years. And he says it has been but a day. Because, you know, for him, all of that travel, all that time away, doesn't matter, he's home now. Which is nice. Whew. <laughs> so, some things that they just left out of this version for some reason was Penelope's question. Which for me is kind of a big one because... It shows her ingenuity and, you know, actually trying to make sure that this man who appeared after twenty years is the man she thinks he is. I mean, fair enough. He's in the movie; he looks exactly the same, so it's fine. <laughs> but in, in twenty years is a long time in Greek time. <laughs> but anyway, um, then they also removed the sirens. So there's supposed to be a scene in which Odysseus and his men come near the island of the Sirens. And it is said that their song is so beautiful that it will drive a man to well, kill themselves by wanting to get close to it. And him being a fairly intelligent and curious man, he wants to hear it. So what he does is he has his men tie him to the mast and has everyone else stop up their ears and like cover them. It's actually on the cover of my version of the Odyssey is him listening to the siren song. Uh but yeah, so you know they they row through that area. He tries to struggle off of the mast, but I think I think he just is fine afterwards. Yeah, that that's missing. Oh, all right. I'm <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to mention that uh, as he's leaving the underworld, he comes across his mother. And the way the underworld's depicted is weird. Like I said, it's it's kind of in a cave, and it's just fire, fire everywhere. Um, so it's depicted more like hell than anything for some reason. But meh, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he he sees his mother. His mother tells him what has happened. You know, that the suitors are trying to steal his home. And that she, while she couldn't wait for him, uh, his wife still does. So there's that. And in this, it's also... So he sets forth a promise that his wife must keep. That if by the time his son has grown a beard, he still is not home. Then she must remarry. And of course, when he his son returns from sparta he has the world's crappiest beard but a beard nonetheless (laughs) but yeah so overall i really enjoy this version of the odyssey it it looks cheap at times because it was a, a tv miniseries but at the same time it's really fun it's a fun thing to just like turn your brain off and watch you know just like the old jason and the argonauts movies and whatnot you know, it's just one of those things. It's fun to turn your brain off and watch. Uh, it gets slow at times. And by the end. You're kind of feeling the three hours. Especially when you hit the halfway point And you're like. Oh god. I'm only halfway through. <laughs> but yeah. But I mean. When you're actually in the finale. You're, you kind of get pumped up again. And you're like. Yeah. So when I recommend this version absolutely it's a great version if you can track it down you can probably find it really cheap or you might be able to stream it somewhere uh relatively easy it's you know it's old it's from 1997 so it's it's you know probably fairly easy to find as for the book uh i mean yeah it sure Reading it in verse gets a little bit annoying because it's not a consistent verse. You know, when at points it rhymes, but at points it doesn't, which is which is annoying. <laughs> it it sometimes hops in and out of rhyme when it's in verse, and that gets annoying. I think it's that it's not supposed to rhyme, maybe, but at the same time, sometimes it does. I don't know why. Anywho. <laughs> With that said, I do recommend the film. It's three hours, so, you know, hunker down and get ready for a long one. But otherwise, uh, enjoy it. It's fun. The special effects are silly at times. um, But when you think about the probably small TV budget that they had, it's pretty amazing for 1997. So, it's pretty good. But yeah, with that said, uh, we will now move on to the update for this week, which is what's going to add extra length onto this episode. (laughs) Anywho, on to the update. Okay, update time. So, let's kind of take stock of about where we are. I have now finished the first five books of the Percy Jackson saga series, franchise, I don't know, Uh, and I have some thoughts, I've also started the first checkpoint, so we finally hit a checkpoint, and now I'm taking a short little, little breather, I'm doing okay on the new book, in fact, I'm gonna go ahead and get uh, the update on the new book out of the way first, so that we can spend... A bit of time just kind of going over the first five books, how it is to read them in quick succession and everything. It's, yeah. So, the first checkpoint book is Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. It's fine so far. I'm almost at the first, um, you know, Goal of it, and it's, it's fine, it's not the best book, but it's, it's okay, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not a big fan of, I mean, it was written in the 90s, so there's, it's, there's some wiggle room, but it, it's, it's a bit rough, firstly, uh, the first, like, the prologue, and the first chapter, and a little bit of the second chapter, is a lot of going over what happened in Empire Strikes Back. Because this book is set between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. It's supposed to be the story of them finding Han and everything. It It's supposed to fill in the gap. And the main villain that we follow is Prince Shizor... And there's just a lot of problems with Prince Shizor that I don't think would fly quite so well today. From his design to just general attitude. I mean, I, I will say that my favorite thing about him and makes him probably the best part to read about the book is just his complete and utter arrogance. He feels that he is untouchable, that... You know nothing can go wrong for him; that he is the best of the best. But you you know that that's going to come crumbling down. They keep laying it on a little bit thicker each time we meet him. But I, I am looking forward to him just failing. A lot. <laughs> he he's a character you really really like to hate, and that that's a pretty good uh, pretty good thing in a villain. Uh. Yeah, the general misogyny just kind of hanging around the book not great. It it's it's just there. It just hangs out there and just kinda of waves its hand every once in a while. And it, it just Yeah, it just uh It just kinda of doesn't work. The majority of it comes from Prince Shizor, of course. But then there's a lot of just weird stuff surrounding Leia's part of the story because For the most part, on the villain side, we follow almost exclusively Prince Xizor, at least so far. I think we're about to uh, start following, like, Vader and whatnot as well, but for the most part, it's Prince Xizor. Then, on the hero side, we follow Leia and Luke, and then I believe we're also going to potentially follow Dash Rendar, and who, who knows how, who else, it. It's not going to be... There's a lot of main characters, and it's getting a little bogged down. But it so far is okay. We'll see how it continues, but so far it's okay. The book is actually kind of longer. Well, it's almost certainly longer than all the Percy Jacksons, so we might end up eating a little bit into our lead. But that's why I needed the lead, is because, well... The Spacer books are books that I haven't read and some of them are really long books that I haven't read. So I I need the spacers and, and some time to have time to actually like catch up and read. But we'll we'll see. It, it doesn't make me super hopeful about the other Star Wars spacer book that I've got, but we'll 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 see. Something that was kind of fun was the fact that I started the first spacer book on a May 4th, also known as Star Wars Day. I just found that a nice little coincidence. Uh, I also continued it, got a good chunk in on uh, May the 5th, the kind of unofficial sequel day for Star Wars Day that people like to call Revenge of the 5th. And I support it. I, I had a name for the sixth as well but it just kind of ends up being revenge of the sixth it just it just it's just the same one again it's hard to find a catchy one for for the sixth anyway with that out of the way so far it's going okay i haven't really read a whole lot over the past couple days currently it is um Well, for you guys, it's Monday, or whenever you're listening to it, but for me, it's the 7th, Sunday, uh, May 7th, Sunday, at 10 in the morning. I just groggily woke up after having stayed up a little too late last night, Uh, and I'm I'm trying to rush out this update so that before there's way too much noise surrounding me because it's too nice of a day and I live too close to a public area that gets super loud super fast. So, with that said, let us move on to the rest of the update, which is going to focus primarily on the fifth book of the Percy Jackson series, as well as just kind of overall the f- the five books that we've read so far. So, the fifth book is a fantastic... Uh, I'm willing to say it's a very fantastic conclusion book. It hits, like, all of the notes properly. Because it is a story that, from chapter one, is kind of on the final mission. It starts off with Percy just kind of hanging out with uh, Rachel Elizabeth Dare, And they get interrupted by by uh, Beckendorf and Blackjack because they have to go on a bombing mission to try to destroy the Princess Andromeda that has been kind of their main target for the past, well, technically three years because they didn't get introduced to it until the second book. So they successfully get on, bomb... The Princess Andromeda. But then they lose Beckendorf. From that point it starts to slow down a bit. Because Percy then kind of gets sidetracked. Goes to see his father. And is immediately turned around. And sent back to camp. And then. Then there's you know. the Him finally getting the prophecy. As well as. Uh, then starting his main side quest. It's it's a main quest, but it's also kind of a side quest. Which is achieving invulnerability. In order to achieve this, he must dip himself in the river Styx, keep himself chained to his mortality by focusing on something, and that's it, really. He chooses the small of his back as his um, anchor point, And the image that's actually able to anchor him properly is Annabeth. Which, this book, for the progression of their romance, is pretty good. Things for them start off very rocky, as they are not on the best of terms since since, uh, the last summer, because of the whole uh, Luke becoming Kronos and whatnot. But they they're able to, once of course the battle starts, just put put their own personal business aside and focus and work together. And from there they're able to kind of come to a bit more of a better understanding. Especially since Percy, for the entirety of the book, has been forced to watch Luke's past. It's pretty much there's points where he has just sat down and forced to watch Luke's history. Because Everyone keeps telling them that they need to know his history in order to fight him or, you know, in order to pretty much not die. (laughs) And for the prophecy to go in a good way. Because if Luke doesn't, or if Percy doesn't know Luke's history, he's almost certainly not going to, as happens in the end of the book, give him a weapon so that Luke can sacrifice himself to save Olympus. Because yeah, throughout the entire book you're given hints and whatnot that Luke is uh, fighting for control as much as he can, but isn't winning as well as he would hope. <laughs> From there, the you know the, the books are good. like it, it, like I said, it's a pretty much non-stop action. There's a weird sidetrack in the sidetrack. In which Percy and Nico. Well Nico led Percy into the underworld. And then. It was like before we you know dip you in the river Styx. Let us take you to my father. He wants to talk to you. And Percy gets super mad super fast. Because you know that wasn't part of the plan. But he's he's willing to take it a little bit too far. In that he's wanting to like kill Nico. And I'm like that's. That's a little bit strong for someone who just, as far as you know, might have lightly deceived you, instead of like full betrayal. But no, he he takes his full betrayal and is like ready to murder Nico at just the drop of a hat. So, yeah that that's a bit weird. And then it gets resolved later, and it's it, it's nice. It's nice to see Nico just as a as a good person. Uh, speaking of Nico, actually uh, little sidetrack, but as of the 5th, I believe, I have gotten the Sun and the Star book, I've figured out where it's set, and I've placed it in the, uh, the timeline of the challenge. So, it is set after the Tower of Nero, the last Trial of Apollo book, so I set it on the other side of Outbound Flight, the last checkpoint book, and that is where it shall uh, be, since it's set just after the Trials of Apollo. Uh, So, yeah, there's that. The other book that comes out doesn't come out until the end of the challenge anyway, so uh, it doesn't matter too much. Uh, Yeah, so with that side tangent, let's kind of talk about the overall experience doing these five books in a row the last time I did it was a slog it hurt to do it actually but of course that was when I was trying to read like a full book in a day kind of thing and it took me overall about a month to read all five books and that was exhausting it still is exhausting to a a certain degree but having the, the checkpoint book really does help alleviate the pain that that doing all five in a row can do and would definitely have problems if I had continued on with just the Percy Jackson books from this point on so the the spacer books good idea they're they're doing their job really well and it's it it's made me overall a lot more positive about reading all five books in a row it actually is not bad the only issue that you come across is patterns you notice the things that get reused constantly like for example in the first like two to three books sorry the first yeah two to three books it's constantly reminding you hey I'm a half blood and whatnot and sometimes sometimes even in like the last book it's going over concepts and whatnot that we've already went over that's like the basic stuff like, I, I don't know, it it just, it hurts. But then see, hearing phrases or reading phrases that get repeated over and over again, can be a little bit annoying. For example, um, the, I had a feeling I wasn't going to see blank again. I had a feeling I wasn't going to do this again. Or I, I laid down and immediately fell asleep. Like, <laughs> that, that, particular one actually comes up like three or four times in the last book alone but it's a pattern that's repeated throughout all of the books and how the hell he's just able to get to sleep immediately I don't know because a lot of times even when I'm super exhausted it still takes me like five minutes to properly fall asleep I wish I had the ability to just like like a light turn it off that'd be fun (laughs) But, yeah, so, th- that's kind of the mild annoyances of doing this challenge, is you see the, the patterns repeat. And one small problem is, because I'm who I am, I like I tend to get curious and start doing some research and checking some stuff. And I'll look ahead, and I'll find out some spoilers that will come up later. That's going to kind of ruin bits of the book. But if it is anything like how I felt while rereading the Percy Jackson books, I think it'll still hit the same. Maybe not quite as hard, but it'll still hit about the same. Because reading all five books, you tend to have the emotional impact hit a little bit harder. Which I think is actually a really fun addition to have to these books like when you have had years building up to this stuff it's a double-edged sword because you've had space and time and you've been you, you know you've invested in this case you would have invested five years into this series and the rise and fall of you know the story but the impact isn't quite as good I'm going to say because of the fact that you've had so much space between the books. And so you don't you unless you've like reread the books on like the release of the new one, then you won't have quite the same impact going from book 1 to book 5 over a period of 5 years than you would over the period of 5 weeks like I have. And so you know, a lot of the story beats from the first book are still fresh in my mind, and it it's a lot more impactful. It's nice, so that that's definitely a positive of doing this challenge. Besides the fact that you are t- kind of rushing your way through an entire series, it it still it still hits about right. So I'm happy about that. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else overall about this series? I mean, the minor errors you tend to notice when rereading stuff again. Um The overall plot is good. Remembering things as you go along that you just kind of forgot about is kind of fun, like the fact that Percy doesn't learn the whole prophecy until the end of the series and they don't linger on it as much as I remember. I remember like him, Okay, so for some reason, my memory of the Percy Jackson series is he learns part of the prophecy in the first book. And then like at the end of one of the books, he, he ends up learning the full prophecy that, he, and then he spends a long time lingering on it and whatnot just for it to turn out, you know, that he isn't the hero in the in the prophecy. And when they say he isn't the hero in the prophecy, they mean literally the line where it says, hero, to, to curse blade fall, he's not the hero being mentioned there. And he, he, for some reason, gets bummed out about that. Because he didn't interpret it correctly, I guess. I mean, he learned pretty fast that he isn't the hero of the prophecy. But... He, he, he kind of gets bummed out, and I, I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's a bit silly, because you'd think that it would be a relief, like, oh, you know, I, I don't have to worry too much about potentially, you know, dying. But what the cursed blade is, it's a little bit odd. The cursed blade in the prophecy is. Annabeth's knife, then the reasoning for it being called the cursed blade is a little bit weak. Because I, I wouldn't call it cursed. Like, cursed, I guess it has a double meaning, kind of. Because cursed can be, um, you know, that it actually has a proper curse, or it's something that you look at and you're just like, gross. I don't, this, mm, super fucking awkward to have kind of thing. Um, so it it kind of works in that sense, but it just feels kind of out of nowhere when you look at it as a justification for it being the Cursed Blade. But it's overall fun. Basically they say it's a Cursed Blade because Luke broke his promise to Annabeth that they would, like, be a family, like, a better family than the ones that they had left. And that he would not hurt her. And by hurting her, he broke the promise and it became the Cursed Blade. I don't know. It's, like I said, it's it's probably the weakest part of the last, um, last prophecy of the first five books. So... Yeah. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, like I do like that characters are introduced before they're actually needed. Which is nice. Uh, like, Nico is introduced in the third book, but he's not fully needed until... Well, actually, he, had, he plays a pretty good role in the fourth book and the fifth book, so that's nice. Um, Beckendorf's introduced in the second book. Pretty much... You can tell that the first book was written and things were like, okay, you know, there's some slight hint at a potential future, but then from then on, the entire plan was probably solidified, you know, so main characters that were important had to be introduced and everything. So you had Selena Beauregard, Charles Beckendorf, uh, the Travis and Connor Stoll, they get introduced in the second book as I believe then you could see that the plan gets a lot more solidified as to what the rest of the story is. You can definitely feel a a bit of a wall between the first book and the second book on. And that, that's cool. That's fun. <laughs> just like how um, like Thalia is introduced at the end of the second book, leading into the third book, and it just kind of chains together. Though I do feel that, I still feel that with the third book, they were like, oh, uh, we said 16 for this prophecy, so we need to do a book set in winter or something. Or they just wanted a change of pace from the dry, reddish feel of the uh, second book to a more blue, cold feel of the third book. I don't know. (laughs) Only Rick Rorden knows and I can't talk to him. But, um, yeah. I think that that's a pretty good place to stop. I have a lot of editing to do today. Especially since uh, I get louder after like 11 minutes. But that, that's a, I think that's a good place to stop. And it's starting to get louder around uh, me. So I'm just going to go ahead and call it there. Um, with that, uh, some news. Since this was the Odyssey week. Next week is going to be Parasite. I finally got, uh, well, I'm finally able to watch it because it went on to a different streaming service, so I can just go ahead and uh, uh, watch it now. So that was lucky. So it'll be Parasite next week and then something else. Uh, Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.